Good morning, everyone. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, lead you in worship this morning. Our call to worship comes from one of the best known and loved Psalms, Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And now we come to our great God with a prayer of approach. Let's pray together. Gracious and merciful God, in this season of Lent, we come together to worship you, to praise and thank you, to seek your forgiveness and ask for renewal. So we pray, create in us a pure heart, O Lord, and put a right spirit within us. We come in the name of Christ, remembering those lonely days in the wilderness, his time of wrestling with temptation, the ministry that followed restoring and transforming so many lives. We ask you, Help us to learn from his example, to search our hearts as he did, to consider our calling, to reflect on our faith, to resist temptation, and to commit ourselves more wholly to you. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and put a right spirit within us. Help us to recognize all that Jesus has done for us through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so may we come gladly to you, confessing our sins, acknowledging our faults, accepting our weaknesses, and receiving your forgiveness. Gracious and merciful God, as we come together on this Lenten Sunday, speak to us now and in the days left in this season, so that we may know you better and love you more dearly. Create in us a clean heart, O Lord. Put a right spirit within us. This is the prayer we bring together and unitedly in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The first reading this morning is taken from the Old Testament book, Genesis, chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, and it's found on page 4 of your Bible. When the Lord God made the universe, there were no plants on the earth and no seeds had sprouted because he had not sent any rain and there was no one to cultivate the land. But water would come up from beneath the surface and water the ground. Then the Lord God took some soil from the ground and formed a man out of it. He breathed life-giving breath into his nostrils and the man began to live. The second reading is taken from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 18, verses 1 to 19. The Lord said to me, Go down to the potter's house, where I will give you my message. So I went there and saw the potter working at his wheel. Whenever a piece of pottery turned out imperfect, he would take the clay and make it into something else. 
Then the Lord said to me, Haven't I the right to do with the people of Israel what the potter did with the clay? You are in my hands, just like clay in the potter's hands. If at any time I say that I'm going to uproot, break down, or destroy any nation or kingdom, but then that nation turns from its evil, I will not do what I said I would. On the other hand, if I say that I'm going to plant or build up any nation or kingdom, but then that nation disobeys me and does evil, I will not do what I said I would. Now then, tell the people of Judah and of Jerusalem that I am making plans against them and getting ready to punish them. Tell them to stop living sinful lives, to change their ways and the things they are doing. They will answer, No, why should we? We will all be just as stubborn and evil as we want to be. The Lord says, Ask every nation if such a thing has ever happened before. The people of Israel have done a terrible thing. Are Lebanon's rocky heights ever without snow? Do its cool mountain streams ever run dry? Yet my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to idols. They have stumbled in the way they should go. They no longer follow the old ways. They walk on unmarked paths. They have made this land a thing of horror to be despised forever. All who pass by will be shocked at what they will see. They will shake their heads in amazement. I will scatter my people before their enemies like dust blown by the east wind. I will turn my back on them. I will not help them when the disaster comes. Then the people said, Let's do something about Jeremiah. There will always be priests to instruct us, the wise to give us counsel, and prophets to proclaim God's message. Let's bring charges against him and stop listening to what he says. So I prayed, Lord, hear what I am saying and listen to what my enemies are saying about me. Amen. I want to begin this morning by asking you if you have ever consciously thought about how significant pottery is in the world. The invention of pottery marks another chapter in the developing history of our world from earliest times. Various, various gaps in the history span, we put titles across like the Ice Age and the Stone Age. One of the ones that we, one of these gross terms that cover thousands of years is the Neolithic Age. And the Neolithic Age actually owes its title to the invention of pottery. Before pottery, there were only wandering tribes, following herds of animals, going from one food supply to another, forced here by drought and there by famine. There was no time to develop anything, no leisure to reflect on anything. It was literally a hand-to-mouth existence, a matter of day-to-day -day survival. And the invention of pottery made it possible to store and to carry 
then it was quite easy to stay in a place for a while because grain could be stored for next winter's meal and water could be carried and cooking could be done and merchandise could be support, could be transported. The invention of pottery signaled a revolution and the revolution is what we call civilization or the Neolithic age. To imagine how life would change if we had no containers in which to store anything, you have to think of having no pots or pans, no bowls or dishes, no buckets or jugs, no cans, barrels, paper bags, cardboard boxes, grain silos, oil storage tanks. Life would be reduced to all that we could manage to get through in a single day with what we hold in our hands at one time. Pottery made it possible for communities to develop. Life was extended beyond the immediate, beyond the urgent. The practical impact of pottery was immense. So the invention of pottery is important. But then there's something else that's just important. No one else, no one has ever been able to make a clay pot that is just a clay pot. No one has ever been able to, re, to, to do it, make it similar. Every clay pot is an art form. And pottery is always changing shape as potters find new proportions and different ways to shape the pots in pleasing combinations of carbs. There is no piece of pottery that lacks an evidence of beauty. Pottery is artistically designed, shaped, painted, glazed and fired. It has one of the most functional, it's one of the most functional items in life. And it can also be one of the most beautiful. And one day, when a young man, Jeremiah, was feeling the burden of his office as a prophet and confusion at the times he lived in, God said to him, go down to the potter's house and there I will give you my message. In Jeremiah's time, and for many centuries after Jeremiah lived on earth, it was a familiar sight in the east, this of a potter at work, fashioning a vessel from the clay. The machinery the potter used was a very simple kind of uh, machine. He had a treadle, and he treadle was linked to a, to a wheel, a round wheel, which was on a horizontal level. And the clay was on this horizontal disc before him, and as he pressed the treadle, so he shaped the clay. As the clay revolved, he molded it into shape, molding it into the vessel he intended it to be, either by hand or by tool. Now, it's a very simple figure. And you've no doubt seen many times on television potters working with the clay. But that day, centuries ago, for Jeremiah, the potter and his clay suggested a philosophy for human life. A very profound philosophy 
although it can be stated very simply. God is the potter. Man is the clay. God fashions men for his use. Jeremiah, in the lesson you heard, applied it to God's dealings with the nations. But it also uh, applies to God's dealings with individuals. So what are some of, the, some of the suggestions which come from this graphic figure that the prophet uses if we apply them to God's dealings with men? In the first place, I want to put it to you that this God as the potter suggests to me the power of God. The power of God. God is the potter. We are the clay. And the clay lies in the potter's hands to be fashioned according to his will. We are in God's hands. He does with us as he will. The power of the potter over the clay. The power of God to do with us as he wills. That's the first and most obvious thing, surely, that this figure suggests. The absolute sovereign power of God over human life. Now before you protest, we can't push this analogy too far. To liken man to clay is not to state the whole truth about man. And a too literal application of the prophet's figure has led to some tragic mistakes in theology. For you see, clay is a thing that lies Passive, wholly passive and plastic in the potter's hands. And we know we humans are not like that. We must never forget that we possess a certain amount of freedom. A freedom which, although limited in its range, is nevertheless within a certain compass a real power of self-determination. It's not possible for clay to set itself in opposition to the potter or to attempt to thwart his intention or to disobey his will, but it's possible for men and women to do that with respect to God. For God has given to to the human race as moral beings the precious gift of free will. And as we acknowledge that, we must acknowledge also that only within certain limits is freedom ours. And around the little circle in which our wills may move and which we may exercise our freedom, there is always the overruling, overmastering, omnipotent will of God. Well, between man and clay there is this great difference, the faculty of free will. They resemble each other in certain respects. And it is this which the prophet had in mind when he brought this graphic picture to us. For both man and clay are subject alike to the effects produced on them from something beyond themselves. The potter molds the clay. And however much you and I may boast of our freedom, however much we may try to assert it and exercise it, we feel often that there's something else that needs to be taken into account. There's something else 
which we have to deal with beside ourselves. And we come, I think, as we grow older to the conclusion that there is a power greater than us, unseen, mysterious, which lies behind all that happens to us in life, and yet which has a profound influence on our lives. We feel that strive as we may, there's something stronger, and we can only strive in vain against it. It's one of the most, this is one of the most universally accepted conclusions about human life. There is a power above us, beyond us, which molds and fashions our wills. And whether men are believers or unbelievers, the broad conclusion that they come to is the same, that we're in the hands of an almighty power which does with us as it wills. The only difference between faith and unbelief is the way we interpret that power. According to unbelief, you and I are in the hands of fate, a blind, unconscious, unheeding power which has no regard for us, which proceeds upon its way, totally unconcerned of what happens to us, regardless of our will or woe. We're placed upon the wheel, and the wheel goes round, and we're merely caught up in the machinery and turned, and we cannot escape our fate, and there's no heart behind the process, nor any intelligence, and no guiding or controlling hand. So the unbeliever will argue. But according to faith, this power is the power of God. The infinitely wise, infinitely righteous, the infinitely loving God, who does all things for our highest good. Do you remember how Shakespeare put it? There's a divinity that shapes our end. It's a tremendous advance on unbelief, and it's the foundation of all true religion when we understand behind all that happens to us in life, there is the hand of God. And having just about completed the first year of retirement, can I say that uh, more and more we come to, I've come to realize the mystery and the wonder of life. And to see that the things that surprise us on the way aren't unplanned by God. That we don't order our lives. God who does with us according to the will, the maker and fashioner of our life is God alone. When we are young, we don't accept that so readily. We magnify when we are young the part we play in the making of our future. We dream great dreams and we make great plans And we have grand and grandiose ambitions. We think in the morning of life we have a considerable say in what we are to be and do. But as the years go on, we travel further along the way. How different it all becomes. Our lives have not turned out exactly as we planned them. Things have not happened exactly as we imagined and hoped they would. 
We've not succeeded in realizing all our plans and dreams. Things have happened to us we never, ever dreamed of. There have been unlooked for joys, unexpected sorrows, things that we did nothing to bring about, and all the aspect of life has changed. So long before the end of life, we're driven by our experience in this world to acknowledge it as the only thing which explains life, that behind all that happens to us here, there is the hand of God, and that we are like clay in the hand of the divine potter. Folks, it's a great faith when we arrive at this through life's experience. It's the profoundest truth there is about life. It will teach you courage in every circumstance. It will teach you humility. And it will also bring with it a patient submission in all things to the will of God. God is the potter. But then this figure suggests to us the purpose of God. The purpose of God. Potter was making pots. God is making souls. He's fashioning human characters after a certain ideal he had in his mind. He's fashioning them for sainthood. Into the beauty of holiness. Into the glory of that great likeness which was manifested to us in Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God concerning all his dealings with us. Our sanctification, the perfecting of our souls, that we may be fit at last for his service. Vessels meet for the master's use. Through all the strange experience and discipline of life, through all its joys and sorrows, its changes and trials, varied and inexplicable happening, there runs a thread. And it's the undeviating purpose of God. The wheel of life spins fast. And sometimes the tool in the potter's hand cuts deep. And amid the whirl and confusion of the moment, it's hard for us to understand what's happening. But it's not the play of chance. And it's not for some purposeless end. The divine workman has an ideal in his mind. The vessels are only in the making yet, but when they're completed, we shall understand and we shall approve all the process then when God has finished his work. And as for the suffering which may be involved, we shall remember that when the tool of God cuts deep, it cuts for beauty. And may I say just at this moment that there is no tool in the hand of God, like the sharp tool of suffering for achieving beauty. And it needs deep cutting sometimes to achieve any likeness to Jesus Christ. And out of what common and intractable looking clay, God can sometimes make his very choicest vessels. What possibilities of beauty and holiness lie hidden deep in the most unlikely souls. He takes sinners and makes them saints 
outcasts and makes them princes in his kingdom. Clay with every flaw in it, he fashions it at length into a vessel fit for his use. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Even in the holiest of saints, it doth not yet appear what they shall be. We see only hints of God's purpose here. Approximations of the ideal which he has it in mind. Mere suggestions of coming glory. There's no perfection here. We don't get the finishing touch here. For that, we have to wait till life is over. For the finishing touch is death. But we know that the divine workman will finish his work at last, and we know that he who has begun the good work in us will perfect it in the day of Jesus Christ. And in that day, when we are presented faultless in the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, we too will rejoice in his finished work. And lastly, God is the potter. He has a purpose. And working at his purpose, he exercises a divine patience. You remember, we've read a moment or two ago, as the prophet worked, the clay seemed to disintegrate in his hands. Some flaw in the clay was spoiling his work. Now, you or I, I suspect, if we'd been intensely concentrating on trying to shape a, a bowl or something on a potter's wheel and it had fallen apart in front of us, I think I might have taken it and flung it at the wall. But that's a human response. The divine response is simply to pick it up and to start reshaping it again on the wheel, using his hand and his tool until he had made it according to his will. It was the same clay he took and he used it over again until it became subservient to his will. And that's how God is continually dealing with men and women. All our lives long, over and over again. And when you come to think of it, our whole past life, what has it been except a long, continual illustration of the unwearying patience of God? His unwearying patience with all our failures and with all our opposition to his will and with all our sins. How often we have rebelled against him and set ourselves in opposition to his purpose and tried to thwart his will. And every time we've ended in failure and shame. How often might he have flung us aside as useless and given up in despair and written us off, given up hope in the work of his hands. And how often he's taken us up again and broken us down and given us another chance and made us all over. The best news of all is this. His patience is still unexhaustible. It's the last message that comes from this Old Testament scene. And it's the message that he speaks again and again in the gospel of Jesus. There is no life which has been marred beyond repair. There is no one who need give up hope for themselves while God is hoping for you. 
you can still count on the patience of God. There's no one on on whom he gives up hope or casts away. And so marvellous is his workmanship that often the clay which disappointed him most becomes in the end his finest vessels. The very flaw in the clay is worked at last into a strange beauty in the finished design. You see, he took David after his shameful sin with Bathsheba And what he passed through gave David a profounder passion and love in his psalms. He took Peter after all that took place in the high priest's courtyard. Do you know, after that, there was not an angel in heaven who could preach like Peter to sinful, broken men. He took Saul of Tarsus with the blood of the saints on his hands and conscience and the memory of it made him afterwards the humblest of saints and the greatest of all the apostles. He's willing to take these marred, broken lives of ours to make them again, waiting to fashion them still to be vessels fit for the purpose he intends waiting to make them fit for his service. And he who has been forgiven much, he can make to shine with a peculiar beauty. May he take us into his hands and fashion us according to his will. And when his work is done, may he see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Amen. May God bless his word. Now we come to our prayers of intercession. On this Lenten Sunday, the theme I have is the purpose of God. And what I want to do is to use um, the response which you have there on the order of service. I'll finish certain paragraphs with this little phrase, all things are yours. And I hope that you will then want to say with me, We entrust them into your keeping. Let's pray together. Almighty and everlasting God, we do not know what to ask for in our prayers. There's so much that we do not know or understand. Yet we know that you are active in our world, moving in human hearts and the events of history to fulfill your purpose. All things are yours. We entrust them into you. So now, Heavenly Father, we come to you and in quiet faith we place ourselves and our world into your hands, asking that your will may be done despite everything that conspires against us, against it. All things are yours. We entrust them into your keeping. We bring ourselves weak, faithless, hesitant and foolish. We bring all that we are and all that we long to be Seeking your help and your transforming touch. All things are yours. We entrust them into your keeping. We bring those who are part of our lives. Families and friends. Neighbours and colleagues at work. All those with whom we rub shoulders in the daily round of life. 
All things are yours. We entrust them into your keeping. And Father, we bring our world, the rich and poor, the powerful and weak, those well-fed and those who are hungry, the healthy and the sick, those who enjoy peace and those who endure war, those who revel in freedom and those who fight for justice. All things are yours. We entrust them into your keeping. Almighty and everlasting God, we thank you that you are involved in our lives, active in our world, and concerned about everything you have made. We rejoice that you hold all things ultimately in your hands, and so we leave them confidently with you, asking only this, may your will be done, your kingdom come, on earth as in heaven. All things are yours. We entrust them into your keeping. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.